following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw, for our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Exodus 2, 1-10 Now a man of the tribe of Levi married a Levite woman, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. But when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. Then she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. Her sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. Then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe, and her attendants were walking along the river bank. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her female slave to get it. She opened it and saw the baby. He was crying, and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. Then her sister asked Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Yes, go, she answered. So the girl went and got the baby's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this baby and nurse him for me, and I will pay you. So the woman took the baby and nursed him. When the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. Kia ora, Shaw Community Church. Hey, it's nice to be with you uh, for church today, even though we can't be with you physically up there in Albany. Isn't this a crazy time with this whole COVID pandemic and our second lockdown? And Lord willing, it won't be very long until our churches can begin to gather again here in Auckland. We were really disappointed not to be with you um, today, but it's really cool to be able to still connect via technology and join you for online church today. And before we jump into God's word, can I just say happy Father's Day to all of the dads and granddads and father figures out there to various people. As a dad myself, I just want you to know how valuable you are. And I'm, I'm just really stoked that we get to celebrate all that you do as fathers and grandfathers today. So happy Father's Day, guys. I hope today's a special day for you as you spend time with your family. Every summer holidays, I take a collection of novels away with me when we go camping. And this last summer, I read a novel that I found particularly impacting. It's called The Girl They Left Behind. It's written by an American, and it's a novel, it's a fictionalized story, but it's actually based on the author's um, mother and her real life story. The, the key character is a woman named Natalia, who is born at the very beginning of World War II to Jewish parents in Romania. Romania very early on in the Second World War tied itself to Adolf Hitler's Germany. And uh, about a couple of years in, the beginning of 1941, there was a massive outpouring of violence against Jews in Romania generally, but particularly in the capital city of Bucharest. Jewish people were attacked, their homes were ransacked, women were raped, people were beaten to death. And in the midst of the carnage one night, a young Jewish couple with a little three-year-old toddler uh, snuck away from the mobs and made their way to an apartment building nearby. And there they left their little three-year-old toddler on the doorstep of this apartment building 
and they told her they would be back shortly and they walked away. They left their child behind in the hope that that child would have a better chance of survival without being found with Jewish parents. She was found by uh, someone living in that apartment building, taken to an orphanage, ended up being adopted by a wonderful Romanian family. But it's her story of uncovering her heritage and her parentage. But what struck me was the little note that was left by the parents as they farewelled their little toddler and asked her to sit on the step and they would be back in a few minutes. Here's what the note said. In anguish and despair, we release this child into the hands of God with hope and faith that she may be saved. Let me just read that again because it's so poignant. In anguish and despair, we release this child into the hands of God with hope and faith that she may be saved. That gripped me, that little note that those parents left, in anguish and despair. And you know what? You and I have never been in a situation that the Jews of Romania were in in World War II. We've never had to, to leave a child behind. And yet there's numerous times in our lives, isn't there, that we face really tough times in anguish and despair, looking in faith and hope for, for God to come through. And even just right now in this season we're in, in our second lockdown with COVID-19, many of you are facing uh, the realities of a harsh business environment and anguish and despair. Some people are facing uh, job losses or the threat of redundancy. Others are facing really tough issues in marriage and relationships or struggling with health concerns for yourself or, or someone else that may have nothing to do with covid or even just facing the, the mental anguish of a second lockdown. Anguish and despair from that little note left by those Romanian parents often sums up how tough life can be, isn't it? Where is God in the midst of our anguish and despair? Well, today I want to come with you to a story that may be quite familiar to many of you, but, but, but I think it, it really speaks to this idea of, of us looking for the hand of God in the midst of incredibly trying circumstances. I'd like to bring you to the story that I think has already been read for you from Exodus chapter 2, the story of the birth of Moses. And it's kind of ironical, really, on Father's Day as we celebrate men, that this is actually a story that's very focused on women. I mean, at the heart of the story is this little baby boy that at the end of the story is given the name Moses. Um, that, by the way, is the only person character that's even named in the entire story. But the key focus of the story is actually on three women. All of them are anonymous. But all of them play an incredibly significant role in the, the survival of this little baby boy. There's the mother, there's the sister, and there's the princess. And the story really revolves around these three people. So you've already heard the story read, so I'm not going to reread it, but I am going to just point out a few things as we walk through the story. It begins, it really is introduced with the birth of this little boy. We're not told the name of the parents. We're not told about the boy himself and what his name will be, except at the end of the story. But it simply notes that they're from the tribe of Levi and they give birth to a son. This is not a good time in the history of Israel to give birth to a baby boy. 
In the previous chapter, Israel has been placed into slavery in Egypt by the, the ruler of Egypt, the Pharaoh. We don't know which Pharaoh it was. He's simply given the title. But he, he enslaved them because he was scared about the people of Israel. And when that still didn't slow down their enormous population growth, he then initiated a program of genocide against Jewish people. And so chapter 1 of Exodus finishes this way in verse 22. Then Pharaoh, then Pharaoh gave this order to all of his people. Every Hebrew boy that is born, you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. And so in the very next verse, the beginning of chapter 2, we read that this couple from the tri tribe of Levi have a little baby boy. And so immediately there's this tension. What are they going to do when this genocide has been ordered by this despot, this tyrant that's ruling over Egypt and enslaving them as a nation? And so this is where the first of the three women in the story step forward, the mother. She decides she's going to hide this little boy. And so we're told in verse 2 that they managed to hide this child for three months because she sees what a fine child he is. It's quite funny, really. We are the parents of three boys who are now young adults, but we thought our three boys were pretty fine looking kids as well. And I think most parents do, don't they? If you've been, if your parents, if you've got younger or even older kids, when our own kids are born, even if their face is squashed like a prune and they're red and they've got heaps of hair or no hair, because they're our kids, we just think they're special, don't we? But I think there's something more going on here. In fact, the phrasing that is used in the original Hebrew text says, and she saw that he was good. Speaking about the mother looking at her baby boy, but it's the same phrasing that will be used over and over again back in Genesis chapter 1 at creation when God saw that it was good. There's an echo of, of the goodness of creation. And, and there's perhaps a, an idea later in the Bible of what might be going on here. In Hebrews chapter 11, we read this idea that um, Moses' parents by faith hid him for three months after he was born because it says they saw he was no ordinary child. And so I think we're probably meant to assume there was something about this little boy, something in their spirit moved, not just because he was precious as their child, but there was something about this particular baby boy. They almost had a sense that he had a destiny about him. He was going to do something amazing for God. And so they hide him for three months. But after three months, their nerves are frayed. They've tried to keep him quiet, but they're dead scared of discovery. And so the mother makes an incredibly heart-wrenching decision. She makes a little ark, a little vessel out of reeds, and she makes it watertight with tar. And then it, she takes it down to the Nile River. And she places her child into this thing and places it into the reeds. One of my favorite animated movies is, is the classic Prince of Egypt. And I don't know if you've watched it recently, but I love the way they tell the story, but there's a few pieces in there that I really don't like, and this is one of them. In the Prince of Egypt, the mother wades out about waist deep into the Nile River, and then she pushes this vessel, this ark, 
out into the water and it goes flailing around down the Nile River and there's crocodiles and there's hippos and there's people rowing um, boats with oars and they, they hit this ark and you're scared it's going to capsize. That's actually not what the text says. The text says here uh, in verse, end of verse 3, she placed the child in the ark and placed it, it's the same word, among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. So we're not meant to envision this little, this little cradle ark thing with, with this baby inside rocking all over the Nile. She places it quite carefully on the edges of the shore. But here's the tough bit. Then she walks away. And that, that's the moment for me that, that brings me back to this book that I read this summer. Let me read that note again because this is what the mother could have written in this story in Exodus chapter 2. In anguish and despair, we release this child into the hands of God with hope and faith that he may be saved. I think that's a fitting description of exactly what the mother of this baby boy did. And she walked away and left him. But she didn't leave him entirely alone. Verse 4 tells us that his older sister stood at a distance to see what would happen. So she's the second female character. We've had the mother. Now we have the sister introduced. And she just stands at a distance to observe. Now the fact that she's not working among the people as a slave would suggest, according to some scholars, that she's younger. She's not yet considered a woman. So she's potentially anywhere between the age perhaps of 6 and 12 years old. So she's still just a girl. And so I, I presume, and I've got nothing to back this up, but I presume that her, her mother would have left her there on the assumption that God somehow was going to come through. I can't imagine a mother leaving their 6 or 8 or 10-year-old daughter hiding near the river if she was worried that a crocodile was going to come and eat the baby and, they, and she wanted the, her daughter to see that. I, I wonder if because the, there was the sense that there was something special about this child, I wonder if she left her daughter there, the sister, to keep watch, hoping beyond hope that God was going to intervene. And he does. Verses 5 and 6 are the climax of the story. Let me read these verses for us because I want us to, to almost read them as though we've never heard the story before because this is the climactic moment. Are you ready? Verse 5. Then Pharaoh's daughter. Now, this is the, the problem often when we, when we come to read the Bible, especially the verses or the passages or the stories we know well, is we miss the drama of that. But if this was being narrated out loud or if this was being made into a movie and a, a figure comes towards the, the camera or comes down towards where the baby is hiding and then you suddenly realize it is the daughter of this Pharaoh that has given this edict for Hebrew boys to be slaughtered. It's the daughter of the dictator, the tyrant. She's the one coming down. And then the way that the story is told, she comes to the Nile, it says, to bathe. Her attendants were walking along the riverbank. And there's the series then in the Hebrew text of a number of short, sharp phrases. And she saw the basket among the reeds. And she sent her slave. And she got it. And she opened it. And behold, it says, literally in the text, 
in the Hebrew language. It was a baby boy. Now just pause for a minute. Imagine you were hearing this story for the very first time. Imagine you didn't know what was going to happen next. What, 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 what would be going through your mind? What are the possibilities here? Is she going to go running back to her dad and let the Pharaoh know she has found one of these cursed Israelite boys down by the river? Or would she just simply call for the guards to come and deal with this piece of trash? Or maybe she, would she be like others in different situations through time where we'd she just step away and pretend maybe she hasn't even seen anything? See, this is the moment in the story, if you were reading it for the first time, this is where you'd catch your breath and wait. What is this woman, what is this daughter of the dictator, the tyrant, going to do? She saw, she sent her slave, she got the basket, she opened it, she saw the baby. Behold, it was crying. And then it says this. In the NIV, it says in verse 6, she felt sorry for him. Literally, it says she had compassion, which is a word that through the Hebrew Bible over and over again will be used of none other than God himself. This unexpected twist in the story is that it's the one of the daughters of this tyrant who is given the order of genocide shows something akin to an attribute or a quality of Almighty God himself. She has compassion on him. She felt sorry for him. And she says to her attendants, this is one of the Israelite boys. And then immediately into that situation, comes the sister. So we've had the mother, and then the sister, and then the princess, and now the sister steps back into the story, immediately steps forward, sees something in the expression on the Egyptian princess, or hears it in her voice, and she steps forward and immediately says, would you like me to find someone, a woman, to nurse, to feed this baby for you? And the, and the princess simply looks at this little girl and says, sure, go. It's only one word in the Hebrew text. And she runs off and she finds her mother. I can't, I can't quite um, imagine what it must have been like. I, I, I presume that the, the mother had gone back to the, the hovel of a home they probably lived in as slaves. She was probably sitting somewhere, uh, maybe on the floor, tears rolling down her cheeks in despair, hoping against hope that somehow her little baby boy would be saved. And then her daughter comes rushing through the door, excited, breathless, finally gets out that the, the baby's been found and it's been found by someone from the royal family, a daughter of Pharaoh himself. And, and she wants to save the baby and she wants to see mum right now. And you have to come because she wants you to look after your very own baby. And the mother goes running back down uh, to the shoreline of the River Nile. And she meets the princess there. And this is what the princess says to her in verse 9. Take this baby and nurse him for me and I will pay you. The mother having left her baby in hope and faith, saw God come through. 
and she takes her baby home and she probably got to nurse him and care for him for the next few years. Often it would be three or four before a baby was weaned in the ancient world. And she would have got to, to sing songs over her baby. She would have got to told, tell him as a little toddler the story of, the, of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and the God that they followed and worshipped and believed in his promises. She began, got to instill her faith as much as she could into the life of her little boy. Until the story concludes when it was time for him uh, to go to Pharaoh's daughter to go live in the palace. The mum took and left her child for a second time, but this time in the knowledge and the certainty that he would be looked after and raised, and he was. He, he grew up in the palace. He grew up in Pharaoh's court, the very court that he would eventually end up undermining. And Acts tells us in one of the speeches there in Acts 7 that, that Moses was trained in all of the wisdom of the Egyptians. He got a first rate education in the court under the very nose of the tyrant who had ordered his death. It's a staggering story of three amazing women who show tremendous courage and resolve and, and compassion. But more than that, can I suggest today that it's a story that shows the wonder of the God that we serve. See, what's fascinating here is that God is not named in this part of the story of Exodus. We never find a reference to God all the way through here. The only person who is named is Moses. At the very end of the story, the Egyptian princess gives him this name that had both an Egyptian and a Hebrew meaning. There's no mention of God anywhere. But can I suggest to, for you today that even when God's hand can't be seen, his fingerprints are all over the story. That, I think, is the big idea of this beautiful story. That even when God's hand can't be clearly seen, his fingerprints are all over the story. I mean, you think about the way that God's fingerprints are, are here. They hide the child for three months without being discovered. And if you have ever had a newborn baby in your home, can you imagine how much of a miracle that is, that the baby didn't cry and get discovered for a period of three months? Then the mother takes the baby down to the River Nile, could have put it anywhere, but she placed it at just the right place, at just the right time, where it ended up being discovered. And it got discovered by someone from the royal family, probably the one person in the royal family that would have this deep-seated compassion on this baby. And the sister steps forward and just happens to, to think up exactly the right thing to say at just the right time. And the mother gets to raise her baby that she had given up. It, it came back to her and she got to raise it for the first few years of its life and instill her faith into her child. And she just happened to be paid for it by the Egyptian court. And then he just happened, Moses, to be raised and trained in, the, in Pharaoh's court in Egypt, the place where foreign princes from all over the known world would send their kids to be trained. And he got to be trained there under the very nose of the man that he would defeat and undermine through the hand of God. 
You see, God's hand can't be seen in the story, but his fingerprints are all over it, aren't they? It reminds me of a, um, of a sermon that my dad actually did when I was just a kid. It's probably the one sermon that I can remember from my childhood. But it stood out to me. My father was speaking from the story of Ruth in the Old Testament. And he quoted a beautiful little verse in the book of Ruth, chapter 2. And in the King James Version, which is now 500 years old, and, and very few of us really read it anymore, but it talks about Ruth going out one day to glean in the fields and get some, some barley or some wheat for her and her mother-in-law, Naomi. And it says, and this is the King James Version, uh, slightly older rendering. It says, it was her hap to go into the field of a man named Boaz. It was her hap. Uh, our more modern translations just say, she just happened to go into the field. And of course, the way that the narrator is telling that story is to suggest it didn't just happen. It wasn't just her hap. It was the hand of God. Because even when we can't see his hand clearly, his fingerprints are all over the story. And that's true of this beautiful narrative of the birth of Moses. It was her hap to leave her baby in just the right place. It was her hap that the princess went down that day to bathe in that exact spot. It was her hap that the sister just thought of the exact right thing to say at that exact moment. It was her hap that this mother got to raise her child and be paid uh, for the privilege of doing so. It was his hap that Moses was the one Hebrew child that would end up being raised in the Egyptian court. But it didn't just happen. This is a story that even though God's hand can't be clearly seen, his fingerprints are everywhere. Can I encourage you today? If you, like the, 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 the characters in this novel, are facing life in despair, as you look out and you don't leave a child behind, but you're facing um, business difficulties or job loss or relationship breakdowns or health concerns in anguish and despair. Can I encourage you today that what was true of Moses's story, what was true of Ruth's story is true of your story and it's true of mine. That even when we cannot see God's hand clearly, his fingerprints are all over our story. And even if you can't see his fingerprints right now, can I encourage you with the reality? You will. One day you'll look back on this season, on this time, and you will see the fingerprints of God. A little over a year ago, I sent an email to the elders of our church at Summit here in East Auckland that began with these words, I'm broken. I hit a significant period of burnout in my life. I ended up having to take extended leave. Four months later, I ended up resigning from my position as lead pastor. This last year has been nothing like what I expected my life to, to go into. This is not the journey that I had thought that God had me on. 
And there were times where it was very, very hard to see the hand of God. But as I look back now a year later, as I'm beginning to discern a new path that that God has Rochelle and I on, I'm starting to look back on those seasons, those periods last year, where it was very difficult to see his hand. And I'm starting to see his fingerprints all over the place. My simple encouragement for you today, my prayer for you today, sure, is that every single one of you will hang on to the the wonderful key idea that I believe the story of the birth of Moses screams out to us. Even when we can't see his hand, the fingerprints of God are all over our stories. He is at work in you as a follower of Jesus. And I pray that's an encouragement for you today. God bless. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources, or to donate to our teaching resource ministry, or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.